Well, what a privilege it is to be back again. My wife and I had an opportunity last weekend to be in Virginia as she was doing a ladies' conference, and I was had the opportunity to preach at Lance Roberts' church. You might remember Lance, one of our missionaries from several years ago, and uh, he spent 20 years over in the Czech Republic and planning churches and starting a Bible institute and a publishing company over there that prints all kinds of works in uh, the Czech language, and I had the opportunity to preach at his church in Virginia, and he's been there two years, and it's it's uh, going as, as it does in churches, oftentimes, uh, where he is having challenges, and uh, those are all good things for his growth and the growth of the church, and so it's great to be there. I thank Tim and Neil for filling the pulpit here. It's a great joy knowing that uh, when when I'm away, there's the Word of God is still opened up, and the people are fed the Word of God, and that's wonderful to to have that. So thank you for that. Well, this morning we're returning to the Gospel of Luke. So we are uh, continuing our study of Jesus's sermon that we find in Luke chapter 6. And I've entitled this series, What is a Christian? What is a Christian? Last time we were here, we began to focus our attention on verses 27 to 38 of Luke chapter 6. And of course, in just a little while, we're going to spend our time around the communion table together, and nothing could be a greater display of what we remember through communion than what Jesus Christ lays out for us in this text. They are really summed up for us in just the first few words in verse 27. Jesus says these very penetrating words, these words that all of us need to really think about clearly in our own minds and our own hearts as we think about our Christian lives and how we live. Jesus says this, verse 27, I say to you who hear, that is, you who are paying attention, you who are listening to me carefully, listen very carefully to this, I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Communion is a reflection of the love of Jesus Christ for those whom He came to save. He came to save you and I who were His enemies. We are what He called us in verse 32, sinners. I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners, in chapter 5, verse 32, call sinners to repentance. So love is the pinnacle description of the Christian. You want to define a Christian in one word? It is love. Because love is the essence of our Savior. A Christian is one who therefore loves his enemies. Some of us may be here this morning and thinking, I don't have any enemies. I don't know of any enemies that I have. I can assure you, you have enemies. You have enemies. The word enemy is simply someone who opposes you. Someone who opposes you. Someone who opposes who you are. Someone who opposes who you stand for. It is someone who Jesus sums up in verse 22, blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and cast insults at you and spurn evil 
and spurn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. In other words, because of who you are, because you are a Christian, you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you have enemies. Now, if that doesn't hit us right between our spiritual eyes, that we are Christians who have enemies, and we are to love our enemies, if that doesn't hit us between our eyes as professing Christians, then we are not thinking about ourselves as we ought to think. Why? Because the Bible tells us that the world will understand that we are Christians by our love. They will understand who we are, not by what we say necessarily, not by by some image that we want to project about ourselves, they will know we are Christians by our love. In other words, when we are like Christ, they know that we are followers of Christ. John 13, 35, Jesus said to the disciples, they will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. But we all know there's a problem. We read that, we see that, we know this is the words of God incarnate to us. This is a command, this is not a suggestion. God Himself is saying to us, His children, love your enemies. He's not saying, hey, it would be good if you loved your enemies. Hey, this might be the best way to go. Hey, it will cause you less problems if you do this. No, He's saying, Love your enemies, and we know there's a problem with that because sin gets in the way. Sin gets in the way. And far too often we are like those in the Corinthian church. Rather than being loving Christians, we are what I sometimes like to describe as meringue Christians. Maybe you've heard me use that term in the past. We all know what meringue is. Meringue is egg whites and sugar beaten into a fluffy consistency that has a whole lot of volume because in that beating there's been a whole lot of air added to it, so it gains all kinds of volume, but there's no real substance to it. There's lots of volume to it, lots of sweetness to it, but no helping substance in it. We have all the volume of being a good Christian, but we lack real substance. Why? Because we have a spiritual heart problem. We have issues in the heart that need to be corrected. In the Corinthian church, for example, there was bitterness among many of the people. There was bickering going on and fighting happening. There were cliques that were taking place around certain leaders. Some were saying, I'm of Paul, and I am of Apollos. Oh, this is the one I follow. Oh, this is the guy I follow. Some of the people were suing each other over petty little differences and petty little matters. They were taking each other to court immorality was rampant in the church and it was being tolerated. In fact, it was a prideful thing for the church saying, look, this is how we're handling it. We're just loving the person. And if all of that wasn't bad enough, the Corinthian church was even seeking self-exaltation when it came to the exercise of some kind of spiritual gift that they had. 
one of the greatest needs in all the world is love, not the exercise of self-love. The Corinthian church was lacking the practice of Christian love. And so this morning, and probably for the next few weeks, I want to I detour over to 1 Corinthians. So go from Luke. We're going to go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Because one of the greatest needs for us, if they're going to know we're Christians, it's by our love. One of the greatest needs for us is the world to see us as Christians in our love. And the one place they ought to see it magnified most is here in the church. If any people ought to be the most loving people on the globe, it ought to be the Christians. This is our greatest testimony to the world. Jesus said, I'll remind us again, John 13, 35, you can mark it down, you can lock it in your mind. They will know that you are my disciples when you have love for one another. And yet, when the Apostle Paul looks at the Corinthian church, he adds up all of their Christian virtues, all of their volume, all the things they're doing, all the outworking of what they're saying is Christian life. He adds it all up and it comes up with a big zero. Meaningless, worthless, it's nothing. They got all the volume and no substance. Why? Because they've forgotten love. That's interesting to me, because, because that indicates to, to me at least, and it ought to indicate to all of us, that it is possible to be a Christian, it is possible even to be a church that looks great on the outside, that has all the strappings and all the packaging and all the nice colors of uh, something good. We can be a church with all the great doctrine we can have the best spiritual-looking life that somebody might look at, but if we lack love, we're actually nothing in the eyes of God. That's a frightening reality to think about. Anything spiritual that is absent of biblical love equals zero before God. That's frightening. We ought to know what love is. And so here in 1 Corinthians 13, the Apostle Paul points out the absolute necessity, the absolute urgency of love that is tragically absent among the church in Corinth who are professed believers. And of course, in chapter 13, a very well-known text to all of us because it's read at weddings, it's read at anniversary Times it's put on walls and plaques and placards and all kinds of things. In verses 4 through 7, the Apostle Paul gives us the qualities of love, and he, he lists them here in all of their, their grandeur and all of their beauty. And they give us another clear picture of the character of what ought to be ours as Christians. So when Jesus says, love your enemies in, John chapter, or in Luke chapter 6, do good to those who hate you, what is he saying? What does he actually mean when he says that? 
Now you can go to any host of books that will attempt to explain just this, these few verses here in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. There are a lot that do a good job. Some, some do a better job than others. They break up this passage in a whole lot of different ways in explaining it. But what I want to just do during our time in the next week, and, and we'll see how, how far we can go, is just simply to take each quality and let its meaning and let its implications just rest on our heart. Just let us think about it. Think about what this means and what it means by way of implication in our own lives because Jesus says in command to us, love your enemies. What's that look like? We already know from our study in Luke that the word used throughout that text when Jesus says love, which is somewhat the the word used in many, many places in Scripture, is the Greek word agape. Right? We know that. We hear that. We we know of that word. When Jesus says in Luke twenty seven, love your six twenty seven, love your enemies, it's the word agape. And agape means self sacrifice. That's what it means. That's the essence of what it's saying. When it says, Husbands, love your wives in Ephesians five, that's the word. Self sacrifice. And so here in 1 Corinthians 13, we are told what self-sacrifice is. We are told what it does. We are told what it does not do. And we are told what it isn't. Paul covers all of that. What agape is, what it isn't, what it does, and what it does not do. In fact, when you look at these verses and you begin to see the description of love here, you find something isn't interesting in the original language. Normally, when we, at least in our English language, when we begin to describe something, we use words that are grammatically known as adjectives. We're going to go back to 10th grade grammar here for just a moment. We know what an adjective is, right? An adjective is a word, some phrase or some, some word. These are adjectival phrases but they describe or they give detail to a person, place, or thing, or an idea. So to a noun, they give, a, they give description to that. So when you read 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7 in the English, you might think that here the Apostle Paul is describing love. He's describing agape. What love is, you would think that this would be a list of adjectives to describe it. But that's not the case. This is not what the Apostle Paul does. This is not what the Holy Spirit leads the Apostle Paul to put down on the page so that we have it here before us this morning. All of these ways that love is described are not adjectives, they're verbs. They're action words. That's what a verb is. And so God does not use adjectives to give us an understanding of what love is, the love He's commanding of us. He doesn't give us adjectives. God uses verbs to describe it. Why? Because biblical love is not a feeling. Biblical love isn't even an attitude. Biblical love is an action. It is to be a continuous action, not divorced from attitude and feelings. 
but rather it is an action that controls and overrides our fleshly feelings and attitudes. So agape love is not described by adjectives. Agape love is best described by verbs. It is best described by action. So true love, when you think about love your enemies, true love is not love unless it is out of a self-sacrificing action. An action that must be overriding your feelings and your attitude. So here in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul lists 15 different actions of love. And I just want us to walk through this, begin this morning to walk through and evaluate in our own lives just what it means to love our enemies. Been, this phrase has just been weighing upon me for the last several weeks, and I almost couldn't wait to get here this morning. An enemy is simply someone who opposes you. Someone who opposes you. They oppose who you are. They oppose what you stand for. They oppose your very essence in your life. It's used a whole lot of places in Scripture, and when you boil it all down, it just simply means that. Someone who stands against you. So we're going to be in this for a few Sundays, but in the end... We ought to know just what love looks like. We'll have hopefully no excuse to be able to say about our own life, this is a self-evaluation. This isn't so we can look out and go, hey, that person's not loving. No, no. Why? Because love doesn't do that. You see, love doesn't do that. Love, this is an evaluation of yourself. This is looking at yourself and saying, how am I doing? For our relationships to be operating and interacting as God intended them to operate, they must operate in the context of this love. They will know we are Christians by our love for one another. This is how we are to operate. This is how we individually must be looking at ourselves and working in our own heart to live out these principles. Our marriages are to be operating and interacting as God has intended them to be in this kind of love. They must operate through love. Our parent-child relationships must operate this way because at times we are our children's enemy and they are ours. At times your spouse is the one opposing you and you are opposing them. Why? Because sin gets in the way. Sometimes you are the enemy at your office, and sometimes your office is the enemy against you. Sometimes you are the enemy in your schoolyard, in your place of education. You're definitely the enemy of the world, because the world hates God. But we must be imitators of Christ. Christ is love. And so here is a preeminence of love that is to be infiltrating and permeating each and every relationship that we have as Christians. It is to be infiltrating and permeating each and every ministry that you and I are involved in. Inside the church and outside the church. 
If we have not love, then all of our righteous deeds are meaningless before God. So how does God describe agape love? Well, first he states what love is. What is love? He says, first of all, love is patient. Love is patient. If you're like me, say, love your enemies. Okay, Lord, okay. Okay, I hear you. Okay, I I know it's a command. Okay, I I, want to do that. I want to start doing that in my life. Maybe I haven't done that so well, but I want to start doing that. How do I do that? Okay, love is patient. You might be saying to yourself what my heart originally said to myself when I began to put all this in my mind again, fresh. Okay, Lord, why did you have to start there? Couldn't you have started with one of the other verbs? Maybe one of the easier ones. Couldn't we just ease into this a little bit? Maybe maybe something a little more vague. Something that I could just kind of go, well, okay, that's a little vague. I'm doing that and I could satisfy myself. No. No, because if there's one character quality, listen, if there's one character quality each and every one of us ought to be thankful for, it's the patience of God, is it not? Even in my even in myself when I'm studying this and I'm going, couldn't we start somewhere? God is being patient. I trust that 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 each one of us is eternally thankful that God is patient. God is love, and love is patient. Love is patient. Now remember that this is an action. Love is patient. It's an action. This is an outworking of God-like love. Patience. Love is patient. That means that biblical love acts with patience in dealing with all things, especially with other people. Let me say that again. Biblical patience is an action, right? It's a Act of love in dealing with all things, especially other people. Now, I want us to be careful here so that we don't get the wrong idea. Right? Because sometimes when we think about patience, we begin describing it as if it's the ability to wait without frustration. Right? Just wait, but don't be frustrated in your waiting. That's how we define patience. It's like, like standing in the checkout line at Walmart. Right? If I just stand there without getting frustrated, then I'm being patient. Listen, don't think you are exercising the essence of biblical patience by just waiting until it's your turn at the next self-checkout. That's not biblical patience. It might be some sense of endurance, but it's not biblical patience. And that's not the emphasis that Paul is making here in describing love. 
He's not simply saying, listen, this self-sacrifice is just you sacrificing your time and waiting. That's not what he's saying. That would be somewhat easy. right? The word patience literally means, in the grand sense, and you're going to go, well, that seems confusing, it means to suffer long. You can say, well, I'm suffering long in this line. Right? The Greek word is makrothumeo. It's used over and over again in the New Testament. It's, 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 it seems to be everywhere. And it most often describes patience with people. Patience with people rather than patience with a circumstance. So, so suffer long in a circumstance. That's not, that's not necessarily what Paul is talking about and what God is, is saying when he says, love your enemies. He's not saying, well, you're, you're, you're staying in it a long time, so that's okay. It's not so much uh, a word that deals with circumstances like standing in that line at Walmart. That's a circumstance. It's not so much patience in, in enduring that. No, it's a word that concerns itself with other people that are against you. Suffering long with people who are standing opposed to you. So it isn't the line at Walmart that's the problem. It's the people in the line that's the problem. See, patience is, is, is thinking about those people in the line at Walmart, not the line itself. In other words, biblical patience is the ability to be wronged by others, the ability to be wronged by others, and then wronged by others again, and then be wronged by others again, and then be wronged by others again, and then be wronged by others again, all while you have the capacity to sinfully respond in retaliation. You have that capacity in your flesh, and maybe your flesh is going, hey, listen, why don't you get your pound of flesh in this deal? But you never even think of it. That's the patience being talked about. You don't even think of it. That's what this love is. That's what loving your enemy looks like. Love your enemy and do good to them, Jesus says in 627 of Luke. That's what loving patience looks like. In other words, it's the spirit which never retaliates. This is why I said it, it, it overrides my feelings. It overrides even sometimes my attitude because my attitude is to get seething, to start steaming my feelings of irritation. But patience overrides that. Biblical patience overrides that. Biblical patience says, I'm not going there. I'm not going there. It's, it's that spirit which refuses to reality, re, retaliate. So, so this action word, patience, describes the person who doesn't get angry at others who sin against them. You don't get angry at them. I've said it this way in the past. We as Christians ought to be as offendable as cardboard. You ever see the delivery driver from Amazon or UPS or FedEx or DHO, whatever, drop a package on the porch? Do you ever see the cardboard go, hey, buddy, what are you doing? can't believe you dropped me so hard. I can't believe I've been stuffed in this box for, for the last few hours. You grabbed me out. I feel like I got freedom. And now you drop me on this porch like I'm nothing. You never hear the cardboard say that. That should be us. As offendable as cardboard. 
saying that love is patient would, would have been an absolute poke in the eye to the Corinthian believers. Jesus saying, love your enemies, was, was like Jesus poking His finger in the very hole in their eye socket. Why? Because in the Greco-Roman world, to not retaliate when wronged was a sign of weakness. For you not to retaliate against your enemies? Oh, that was unheard of. Everyone did that because that was virtuous. You stood up for yourselves. You were the big person if you exercised your right to retaliate against someone who attacked you. That's what you should do. This is your right. You were actually showing that you were the stronger person. And listen, you and I can certainly identify with that, can't we? Let me think about that. Just think about this week. Think about the things that happened to you this week. I, I don't know any of those. You know them. Think about all this stuff. How many times did you get frustrated? How many times did you get irritated? How many times did you just desire to lash back? Oh, maybe you didn't, but you desired it. Your heart was there. That retaliation was inside, even though you didn't act it out on the outside. Just think about it for a moment. Think about the day and age in which we live here in this very country. Think about it. Think about the attitude that is out there all over the place. What is on our minds? Listen, I have my rights. We fight for our rights. We fight for our rights. No one is going to step on us. Marriages are failing all over the place. Why? Here's the reason. Written on most of the marriage the divorce certificates, irreconcilable differences. You know what? We, we might as well just translate this as, I will not love self-sacrificially. I will not be patient with this person. In fact, I will retaliate against them. I'm not willing to yield my position. I'm unwilling to suffer long with you. I am willing to love myself. I am unwilling to love you. You see, to God, retaliation is the very opposite of love. To get your pound of flesh is the very opposite of love. Love does not retaliate. And the Christian is one who loves. We are commanded to love. We're commanded to do what God has asked us to do. The Christian is a person who is often hurt by others. It's just what it is. Jesus said, if they hate me, they will hate you. Peter said, it's better to suffer for doing what's right than to suffer for doing what's wrong. What benefit it is to you if you suffer for doing something wrong? Should, should you not just do the right thing? And if you suffer, God's will is there. Okay. We're often hurt by others. The Christian is a person who is often being insulted in their life by way of other people. Christian is a person who sometimes emotionally and even physically is injured by others. While they have the capacity to sinfully take revenge, they don't. They don't. Why? Because of love. Because of love. Some, 
we often ask ourselves this question when we read the Gospels. Did Jesus love the Pharisees? I mean, he said so many words to them that were so pointed, so directed. Matthew 23, Jesus just hammers them. Woe to you, you hypocrites. Was that loving? Is Jesus loving them? Well, if we say no, then we have to say Jesus wasn't God, right? Because God is love. And therefore, all that God does is an expression of his love. Even his wrath is a loving wrath. So Jesus was loving them because the scriptures say, speak truth in love. So we have to be loving in that way, and sometimes that means we must say things that are difficult to hear. But it is not about us, it is about the honor and glory of the one who called us into a relationship with himself. So why don't Christians take revenge, or why should not Christians take revenge? Because we are patient because love is patient. And Jesus said, love your enemies. We are willing to be long-tempered. Long-tempered. There isn't one Christian that should have a short fuse. Someone says, I just have an anger problem. No, you have a sin problem. Well, I just have a short fuse. I mean, people are so irritating. Yes. Yes. But that's not why you have a short short fuse. You choose to have a short fuse because it doesn't go your way. James 4 clearly says that, right? Why do quarrels and fights happen among you? It's not because your lust, the flesh, your own self. You want something, you don't get it, so you fight. That's not a Christian virtue. The Christian virtue is love. Love is patient. Ephesians chapter 4 Verses 1 and 2 says this, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. Now there's an example, just in verse 1, an example of love and expression. This patience, this unwillingness to retaliate in action, flowing out of humility and gentleness that that expresses itself in this unwillingness to retaliate. It's patient, showing tolerance for one another in love. There's a definition of that. And if we need another example to follow, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 says this, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. There it is encapsulated in the quintessential example of our life. We follow Christ. We love Christ. We follow Christ. Christ was the quintessential example He loved us. We ought to love like He loved us. So when Ephesians 5 says, Husbands, love your wives, He's saying, love your wives as Christ. When it says the wives come under the leadership of the home, it's as you come under Christ's leadership. It's as you love Christ. The same way you love Christ, the same way you follow Christ, you're to follow the one God has placed in your life to lead. 
So if God is long-suffering, then we too, if we are imitators of God, ought to be long-suffering. In fact, Romans chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, says that the person who rejects God's grace, think about this, the person who rejects God's grace is really rejecting God's long-suffering. You say, really? Is that what it's saying? Yeah. yeah. Notice, go over to Romans chapter 2 for just a moment. It's a fascinating passage. Romans chapter 2, verse 4 and 5. Well, let's, let's back up and go a few verses before that because he starts that with or. He says, you're without excuse, verse 1, every man of you who passes judgment, for in that you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same thing. So Paul's just saying, listen, you're without excuse, you're a hypocrite. You do the very same things you're judging other people's lives about. You're a hypocrite. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. So, so you're under the judgment of God. And do you suppose this, O oh man, that you will pass judgment upon those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you're going to escape the judgment of God? The reality is, listen, you're just like them. Nobody's without excuse. That's how he started it. Or, verse 4, here you go. Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. The Apostle Paul is saying, listen, the reason you have problems is because you're rejecting the grace of God. What grace? His unmerited favor in the reality of showing you patience. He should have snuffed you out a long time ago. He could have. He was right to do it. He doesn't have to sit and not act in retaliation against you, even though he has the right to, but you think so lightly of his kindness and forbearance and patience that you stubbornly and unrepentantly turn from that, and in that you are just heaping more and more of God's wrath upon your head. Because there's coming a day where He will render to every man according to his deeds. So you reject God's grace, you're really rejecting His long-suffering. You're rejecting His patience. Our model to follow, beloved, is God. Our model to follow is our Savior, Jesus Christ. Our model of long-suffering is our Lord and Savior who hung on the cross and said to the Father, what? Forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. They're clueless, Lord. Forgive them for their sinfulness, because they have no clue. He was long-tempered. Praise God, he was long-tempered. You and I stand here today as Christians because God is patient. No vengeance, no retaliation, no fighting back. That was Jesus on the cross. Now listen, can you imagine what the church would be 
Can you imagine Fellowship Bible Church as a whole? Can you fathom what this church will be when you and I begin to practice this kind of love for one another? There's not going to be bickering. There's not going to be backbiting. There's not going to be these little cliques over here that say these things about these people, but don't say them in front of these people. There's not going to be any of that kind of thing. There's going to be self-sacrificial love for one another. Can you fathom what our families and our marriages will be like? Can you clearly see what the testimony to the world will be like? They will look at us and say, man, those people are so different than anything I know. I've hammered them. I've insulted them. I've hated them. I've done things against them. And all they continue to do is show patience. All they continue to do is sacrifice themselves. If we, the Christian in the church, love like that, Nobody ever seeking revenge. Nobody ever sinfully retaliating against another person who wronged them. Man, imagine what your families would be like. How your wives might respond to you if you love as Christ loved you. If you just begin to put this one principle in practice, you begin to just allow patience to override your feelings, override your emotions, let your emotions and feelings come under it, subordinate to it, flowing through it. Imagine what your families will be like. Imagine wives, how your husbands will respond or could respond to you when you love them through the love that Christ loves you. Imagine that. It'd be dangerous for us to sit here this morning and go, yeah, I'm doing that. I'm doing that. Be dangerous. Be dangerous because there are areas, there are areas guaranteed, guaranteed there are areas where we need to exercise this kind of love. Can you imagine being a church where we all responded to the irritations that we inflict upon one another with long-suffering patience? the kind of patience that God in Christ has shown to us. Can you imagine that? It can happen. Why? Because we have the Spirit of God. It can happen because we can follow the Spirit. It can happen because we can exercise this kind of non-retaliatory love. Paul says, listen, Corinthians, listen. You want the best gifts, don't you? That's what he's saying. You, you want the best things. Oh, you're all striving for it. You're all trying to get it. You want the best gifts, all this superiority. You want to be seen as the best. Yet you want it for all the wrong reasons. You want to be first. But you want it for all the wrong reasons. You want to be the one who gets all the praise. You want to be the one who has all the titles. You want to be the one who's elevated to the place where someone could say, oh, look at you. Or you can be called something you've never been called before. You want to be the one who is at the top. But that's not the character of love. 
That's the character of a sinful heart that says, I want the advantage. I want the place. I want to be the prominent one. That's not love. No, you're taking advantage of others. Love is ready to be taken advantage of by others. Why? Because love is patient. Love is patient. Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, verse 27, love your enemies. Love your enemies. How do I do that, Lord? Be patient with your enemies. Be patient with your enemies. But my enemies keep hurting me, Lord. Be patient with your enemies. But what if they, what if I'm eclipsed by my enemies? Love your enemies. What if they keep doing it? Love your enemies. Beloved, this is the essence of what we see in our communion table. This is the essence of what we see in Jesus Christ. The reality that Jesus Christ was patient. Infinitely patient. Entrusting Himself to the One who judges righteously. No retaliatory words in his mouth. No desire to get back. No desire to to take his place outside of the will of the Father. He simply kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. You know what Jesus is saying in John 6 or Luke 6? I want you to be like me. I don't want you to be like the Pharisees. They're doing it for show. I want you to be like me. Love your enemies. And they will know you are my disciples by how you love one another. Isn't it interesting that Jesus says that in John 13, 35, they will know you are Christians by your love for one another. And Jesus says, love your enemies. The implication there is that at times we are one another's enemies. And the same principle and practice we think that we have to exercise to the world around us is the very same principle and practice we have to exercise to one another. Because we act enemy-like when we ought not. My exhortation for us this morning is simply this. Let us be like our Savior. Let us be like our Savior and love our enemies. Only 14 more. I mean, how hard can it get? Only 14 more. Let's pray. Father, one sense, just six little words. Love your enemy. Love is patient. Crushing. No greater weight upon the heart than those words And yet we have your spirit. Oh, what a wonderful, wonderful gift. These words don't have to be overwhelmingly crushing. But because of the spirit in us, we can practice them. 
We can walk as you have walked. We can walk worthy of the calling with which we have been called. We can be imitators of God. We can love our enemies. We can exercise patience. Lord, help us do that. Help us do that. I know, I know, Lord, sometimes we're fearful to pray for patience because we know you're going to bring opportunities for us to be patient. When those opportunities come, Lord, help us be patient. May we follow you. You've given us the roadmap. You've given us the power. You've given us the strength by your spirit. We can do it. Help us to do it. Well, thank you for your greatness and wonder and the gift of your grace to us through Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.